We are back with Crystal Krieger. She was our guest last week as we started looking at mental health. And if you didn't listen to that one, I definitely encourage you to go back and listen. It was a great conversation and will probably be important to listen to before we get into this conversation. Let's start the show. Welcome to For the Sake of Phoenix, a podcast by Missio Day Communities, where we discuss how a community of God's people can learn to grow in God's ways for the sake of our city. I'm Chris Preby. I'm one of the hosts and one of the pastors of Missio Day Phoenix. We believe the Bible tells one unified story, and it's the true story of the whole world, a story that moves from creation to restoration, where Jesus is the hero and the church is invited to join in his redemptive work. Before I go any further, let me introduce you to my friend, co-pastor, and co-host of the show, Anthony Suarez. You can be known by the creator of the universe and deeply loved. And we as the church are to be an expression of that. We are to be the mediator, the ambassador, the expression of God loving his people. Crystal, thanks for being back here. Glad we didn't scare you off last week. Thank you for having me back. I'm glad I didn't scare you off either. (laughs) Just a little bit. but (laughs) We we did some processing and decompressing afterward. And, you know, Anthony and I were like, okay, I think that was good for us. A little bit of therapy time. So The email you sent afterwards um, detailing all the things we need to work on. And maybe address in our lives was super helpful. Yeah, the homework you gave. Um, just kidding. She didn't do that. So we decided uh, last week being kind of an overview of mental health and how people are being affected right now. This week, we want to dive a little deeper into specifically anxiety and depression. What are they? Are they related? Where do they come from? Uh, what do we do about them? thought we would kick it off with a little bit of on the spot, heat of the moment, put you in the hot seat questions. Uh, have you ever experienced anxiety and depression yourself? Oh, that is an on the spot, heat of the moment <laughs> question. Yeah, was, wow. <laughs> Just dive right in. Let's go. <laughs> um, I have. I definitely have. When I was in my um, early 20s, kind of late teens, I definitely went through a pretty heavy phase of depression. Um, and then throughout my entire childhood, I was actually just telling Anthony about this a minute ago, throughout my entire childhood and into a good portion of my adulthood, um, I struggled with anxiety really bad. I remember being in a probably kind of mid twenties ish and realizing that that feeling I had had my whole childhood was anxiety. It was really like this aha moment where I was like, Oh, that's where that was. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. We're sharing this. Just so some listeners could be like, oh, okay, I'm not the only one, right? Right. Um, similarly, when I know Bethany came home from one of your trainings about trauma, and there was like a list of like, here's some things that could happen and like sort of the like, here's big moments that can cause trauma, but then mm-hmm. up, here's like things that happen sustaining over time that can cause trauma. And she was going through them and she was like, I think you can check off every single one of these from your, from your life and childhood experiences. And I was like, what? No way. I I don't have trauma. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was looking through, I was like, huh, not all of them. 
think there was one or two I left off. <laughs> out, but, of, out of the three pages? Yeah. <laughs> that was probably so you didn't have to check them all off, too. <laughs> yeah, it was just so I could feel a little better about my life. But, um, yeah, it was like one of those like moments like, oh, wow, this was, uh, you know, how you said, I realized I had anxiety like throughout pretty much my whole mm-hmm. childhood. And I think that that one can be, I thought what it was going to do was kind of floor me and deflate me a little bit. Right. Uh, and there might've been a moment of that, but really it also, I think was really helpful for me and affirming in a lot of ways. And also showed me like, okay, it's time to start like grabbing some tools to figure out how to face these things. Right. Right. And I think we do tend to think of that, if I can talk about trauma just for a minute, we do tend to think of trauma as like these really big events. And so a lot of people can look back in their lives and say, I've never had anything like that happen. I've never had these huge significant events. And so it doesn't make sense to me why I might be struggling with depression or anxiety. But there is, um, the word for that would be environmental trauma. It's what we call environmental trauma. It's these little things that just kind of build up over time and that can be anything from subpar parenting. So parents that couldn't see and hear our emotional needs that could be um, parenting that's overly performance focused. So parents that push, push, push us beyond what our capabilities are. And they, again, there's this lack of attunement and being able to be seen and heard as a child. Uh, chronic stress, chronic chaos, all of that falls into that environmental trauma category. And that actually, and I, I think this holds true from my experience and from the research is that when kids go through and like prolonged environmental trauma, that actually has a more long-term effect than if a child was to go through one episode of abuse or one episode of sexual abuse. Because if that if the person goes through one episode of a big event, but they have a secure base in their caregiving system and mom and dad, they actually fare pretty well because they know where they can go for comfort and support versus when that is just lacking throughout childhood, it really throws off all of the body's chemistry. Makes me wonder what kind of trauma I'm causing to my kids right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have good news for you. <laughs> I have really good news for you. Um, the first thing is that none of us is going to do this perfectly. Mm -hmm. That's not the good news, but kind of it is. (laughs) Um, I remember again, this really distinct moment in my life where I was praying and I, my prayer was God help me to be enough as a mom. And I just really heard clearly from the spirit. You're not ever going to be enough. That's Mm -hmm. my job. Yeah. And Again, what all the literature shows, and I remember even reading this for the first time in a parenting book where it says, you don't have to be perfect, just good enough. And I thought, oh, that's good. I can do good enough. Yeah. <laughs> like I can do good enough. And that's, that's, I mean, the two factors are we, one, we teach our kids, we allow our kids to know that we're not going to do this perfectly. And that's why we have a good, good God. Mm-hmm. And to that, and we don't have to do it perfectly. Mm-hmm. We don't. And it's such a relief to know that. Yeah, absolutely. Anthony, trauma, anxiety, depression. <laughs> Let's just lay <laughs> it all out We're throwing trauma well. in here now, too. <laughs> this is good. <laughs> we should do a, another episode with you on trauma. It's like a whole other. It, I, I kind of took us off course, but. That's my passion. I would love to. I will say to that, um, if I could for a minute, I can't remember if I mentioned this last time or not. But 
<clears throat> so the for the first five years, I only worked with children. And then when I went into private practice, I started working with adults. And it's been really interesting working with adults because what I've learned is that adult, adults could have been through traumatic events or environmental trauma, and they learn how to mitigate that their entire lives and into adulthood. And by, by, by mitigate, what I mean is they learn how to manage the symptoms of it. And then they have this one thing that happens in adulthood that tips the scale. And then you see post-traumatic stress disorder mm-hmm. years and years later, because all of that time they were able to do just enough to hold it together. But then the one thing happens where they just can't anymore. Yeah. And so even as adults, we may be fine our whole lives. And then all of a sudden we want, and it may be something seemingly insignificant, but it's just enough where we can't mitigate anymore. And so we may see um, bouts with depression, anxiety, and PTSD. Mm-hmm. So our anxiety, depression, things like that, like how often are they stem from things like trauma? That's a difficult question to answer <clears throat> because the truth is we don't know. There's a lot of different theories, and so I can show I can share some of those theories. As a trauma therapist, I think that when those things happen, they can happen or- organically, but I don't think generally they do. And so I do think, again, just my own perspective and experience that usually when people experience anxiety and depression, it does come from traumatic events or environmental trauma. Um, there are some theories that say that there are some biological components to that. Um, I say this cautiously because I'm not a geneticist and I try to be really cautious speaking into a field I can pretend I know a lot about, but don't really. But um, It's like my whole job. <laughs> <laughs> But there is a body of research now on something called an epigenome. And and so th- this has been really interesting. It's been particularly interesting for the trauma field. So we have our DNA. Our DNA is fixed for life. What you get what you, is what you get, and you just can't change that. But our DNA is wrapped in something called our um, epigenome. And our epigenome actually is not fixed for life. Our, and our epigenome determines which DNA or red is active and which are red is inactive. And so that adjusts to the environment that we're in and is also passed down to our children. Mm-hmm. And so um, the example that I like to give, and this is very, very simple, um, very simple, is let's say that you have a child who is raised in um, a very chaotic environment. And so they become very, very anxious and they carry that into adulthood and end up, they eventually have children. Well, their epigenome is going to activate certain things in their DNA that will cause them to feel more anxious. And now they've then passed that on to their children. And so now their children, even though they may live in a more structured home, may struggle with anxiety. And so the body of research that I'm familiar with It says that they can actually trace the effects of trauma back three generations through the epigenome, which means three generations ago, the trauma that 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 those people experienced. Now, their great great grandchildren are still experiencing some of those traumatic responses because of how that epigenome reads Mm -hmm. the DNA. Mm -hmm. But I did read an article and I will say this is a caveat. It was actually. I don't know if I can use the word convicting in this context, but 
it was written by a geneticist and he's like, hey, we've got all these people talking about the epigenome that aren't geneticists and we don't, as geneticists, we don't have a full understanding of it and how it mm. works. And so we just have to be cautious of how we understand that information. And so I say that cautiously, but it is one of the theories out there. So mm. some people think that it is um, through genes, which epigenome kind of. Um, some people think that it is through, it is, um, hereditary that way. Uh, other people. The hyper-spiritualized version of epigenome would be generational curses. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, that was the very first thing I thought of when I read about the epigenome. I'm like, oh, this explains transgenerational sin. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. this is our explanation for transgenerational sin. So, and even when I think of. Like I have, as I've gone through um, learning about mental health and as I read through scripture, I'm like, oh, what they were telling us 2000 years ago and more is what we're learning now scientifically. Mm. Just scientifically, we're backing up all these things. I think of Paul when he talks about the renewing of the mind. Yeah. Um, and now in our mental health field, in, in essence, we're saying, hey, we need to spend time renewing our minds. Mm-hmm. And I think, wait a second, this was written mm. 2000 years ago. and Like, now we're just scientifically backing that up. So yeah, just talking about how trauma can, and even if we, let's not, let's play it safe and not say it's one of the main causes, but let's say it can cause or lead to anxiety and depression. We're definitely seeing that in the world right now, where a lot of people, especially I'm thinking of Western society, the U.S. in particular, we've lived very comfortable, right? Um, we not to take away from the fact that people have had traumatic experiences right. or environmental trauma ongoing, but for the most part, we've still been very comfortable. And to have a lot of those comforts ripped away, in a sense, could be very traumatic, right? Sure. And so there's probably a lot of trauma going on in homes all across our city, our state, our country. And my assessment would be that that's probably stirring up and causing a lot of anxiety. And maybe even depression for people in their homes. Right. Because one of the ways that we mitigate trauma, but I think this is pretty true to even outside of trauma. One of the ways we mitigate life in the light of really busy schedules and overpacked lives is we seek out control and structure. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard someone say one time, it was quite comical. We've had this 2000 year um, obsession with control. <laughs> And I, and it's true. Like we, I, I can't speak to other cultures, but in the U.S., we do have a very high need for control. Yeah. And what happens when all of the sudden, so not just individually as families, but societally, suddenly we've lost control and we've lost structure. And that can, you've suddenly lost your, your coping strategy, mm-hmm. your mitigating strategy um, for PTSD or 
um, your mitigating strategy for even anxiety or depression. I mean, I know people who have not left their house since March. And we've talked about this. I know you guys each do as well. Um, And I think that's part of regaining control Mm -hmm. for some people. Right. Is And obviously, I'm not. There's a reality, too, of like there's being responsible and trying to stay healthy and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but to the point of not, not seeing any sunlight <laughs> for five, six months, you know, right, because it's trying to regain that control in a sense. Yeah. Living in fear mm-hmm. in essence is chronic stress and that's really damaging to the body. Yeah. Could you see like entire families, you know, being stuck in a home and like, anxiety growing and how does that how does that work when like multiple people sharing a space are starting to feel that anxiety and maybe even depression do they play off of each other what does that start to do absolutely so we have this cluster of neurons in our brain called our mere neurons it's actually where empathy comes from so when somebody walks into the room and they look sad, I'm going to start feeling a little sad too. My mere neurons are going off yeah. and it's going to start reflecting what that person is feeling. Um, and that's a really real quick to interject. That's why when you're at a job and you have, you work with someone who complains about the job all the time, you find yourself complaining about the job too, right? Like it, it's contagious in that sense. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. It's why when you can see somebody across the room laughing, you have no idea what they're laughing about, but you start laughing too. And so that's really um, an incredible part of being a human being Mm -hmm. is that it brings us into this place of understanding and feeling with somebody. But there's as many things, a downside to that as well. And one of the downsides is when somebody's angry and upset, our mere neurons are going to start going off. I think we can all, all of us who are parents can say we've experienced those moments where our kids are completely escalated mm. and we go up and match them. And that's because our mere neurons are, are mirroring what their, what their brains are doing. If you were to take a brain scan, they would pretty much look identical. I think in a home environment, in any kind of system setting, the rule of thumb is that Whoever is kind of set the hottest, like emotionally intense, Mm -hmm. um, everybody else will set to that point as well. Mm. Um, And that is with the exception of an adult who can stay intentional. So I think the difficulty is that right now with COVID, um, a lot of times it's the adults who are having fear that are then bleeding into, um, bleeding kind of over into their children. I would even, or can we, characterize COVID as environmental trauma? Hmm. That's an interesting question. It's almost an event, a traumatic event, but now has been ongoing. Right. So it's kind of bleeding into both in a sense, isn't it? Yeah, I would say so. I would say so. I think of the way I kind of differentiate environmental trauma versus traumatic events is traumatic events. If we were to take a timeline, we could put a little blip 
on our timeline. Blip happened here, happened here, happened here, happened here. So we can kind of have these little blips. An environmental trauma, there is no blip. We can't say here is this exact moment this happened because it's more like this constant that is running through. And so when we first all heard about COVID, it was kind of like blip, Mm -hmm. but that blip didn't stop and it just kept going on. But people continue to have blips even in spite of that. So somebody I loved passed away from it. I hear of somebody I love passing away from it. And so we can add some of these blips as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I mean, as I think about it, it has reoriented so much of our lives in ways that we didn't expect at the beginning, right? Whereas right. we thought at the beginning, we we're like, oh, it's the flu, you know, like uh, it'll go away in the summertime or, you know. Right. But it, and even for our kids where all of a sudden they were on spring break and all of a sudden they're like, nope, you're not going back to school the rest of the year yeah. or you're just going to do it at home. And now it's still continuing now you're going to have to start online, all, all of these different things. Parents figuring out um, how to do that or losing their jobs. or So I feel like in a lot of ways, there's some similarities between like a major environmental disaster and this um, because it, it's just affected so many different parts of our lives and including right. our kids. Right. I mean, in general, just 2020, can we just chalk it up to environmental trauma? (laughs) Can a whole year just be environmental trauma? Yeah. And the truth is, I think that there's probably a lot more environmental trauma outside of um, this year than we give ourselves credit for as a society. Mm. Um, I had this funny experience last year, so well before COVID. Um, I don't, I'm not one to watch the news. Um, I probably find out when things happen like three days after they happen because I just don't watch the news. But it, one day I was at the gym and of course there's like this long stream of stream of TVs across the gym. And I don't know why, but whenever I'm there, I find myself just like staring at the TV, reading the closed captions. And I have, I might have to constantly remind myself like Crystal, don't watch TV. Like you don't really like TV. Don't watch the news. Well, I'm on the elliptical, which is supposed to be very like, um, the elliptical is like so movement, like your whole body is just kind of opening up and relaxing because it's such a, such big movements. And, um, as I'm on the elliptical, all of a sudden I notice that my jaw is clenching and my shoulders are tightening. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? And I realize it's because I'm watching the news. But the thing about that is, um, it was, it was some, it was actually a pretty horrific crime, but it happened across the country. And I started thinking, I am in a threat response system. My body is tensing up as if there's, as if I'm bracing for the punch on something that didn't happen in my village, which is one of the reasons why I don't watch the news is because my, my mind and body were only meant to handle the threats in my village, Mm. the most important ones. And yet we get the threats from across the world all day long. And so I think in some regards, that's an environmental trauma because we're constantly inundated with all these threats. Yeah. Well, so you get people just feeling that stress like 24 seven. Right. And it's almost like the whole train wreck analogy. Like you can't look away, like where people keep going back to their newsfeed mm-hmm. to hear more, like what ended up happening with this thing. And then they hear about more bad news. Right. 
Right. And it and it's not just the news either. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere. We where at its roots, environmental trauma is chronic stress. Mm. And our bodies aren't meant to live under chronic stress. And if you think of culturally how the U.S. is set up is this chronic stress. Our status symbol is busyness. Mm-hmm. Most of the time when you ask somebody, how are you? They go, I'm busy. Which we wear as a badge. Right. Yeah. Right. I must be important, valuable, et cetera, et cetera, because I'm busy. Our schedules are overloaded. Um, there isn't much time for rest. Mm-hmm. And then we're hearing of all of these threats. And then we have so many other things that are causing chronic stress. And at the root of it, that is what an environmental trauma is, is chronic stress. I keep coming back to this connection because when you're talking about chronic stress being like environmental trauma, like mm-hmm. ongoing trauma, and stress and anxiety are so related, right? Mm-hmm. So That was going to be one of my questions. Is stress and anxiety the same? Mm-hmm. Is it, are they related? Oh, or the same? are they? Because are they, I think sometimes we use them interchangeably. Sure. Right? Or I'm anxious or I'm stressed or... You know, so are, are they synonymous? Like, can we use them interchangeably or are they different? At um, core? I think they're different. I don't I don't know that I could quote any research on that. But um, I've always thought of anxiety like our body's alert system. It's our body's system of saying something is not going right. And sometimes that can be really helpful. Sometimes we want our body to have that alert system. So I think of, okay, if you are getting ready for an exam at school um, or you have a really big project due at work, you're going to feel anxious about it because that's your body's alert system that says, don't go to sleep right now, prepare for this. Mm -hmm. And to some degree, you kind of want it there. Um, It's what gives us the motivation and energy to, to actually take action on those things. But the tricky part is that anxiety can also be a liar where we start feeling anxious about things that maybe we don't need an alert system for. Mm. Stress, I don't know that I've ever really thought about defining stress. Stress, I would imagine if I were to kind of take a stab at defining it, would be more along the lines of I'm overloaded right now. Mm. I have too much going on. In the body chemistry, I would imagine there's some similar things at play. So your body is still going to get flooded with um, cortisol. And anxiety, it may get flooded probably if I were to take a hunch. Again, I'm kind of just taking a hunch here. Um, a little bit more adrenaline because adrenaline's like your energy forcer. So I guess that's how I would dif- differentiate the two. They could look the same and they could be, and I don't know that they're mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. So they could, there's probably definitely some overlap. So at the very beginning, you talked about how in your 20s, you kind of had this aha moment where most of your childhood was, you could look back and say, wow, that was anxiety. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Like what were 
As you looked back at your childhood, what were the symptoms that all of a sudden you realized that was an, an expression of anxiety in my life? Sure. I definitely think there were some internal expressions, and I think that there were some external expressions of that. So when I had that aha moment, it was recognizing the feeling in my body. Mm. Um, I remember being a little girl and having like that anxious energy feeling in my chest. Um, I actually remember feeling nauseous a lot as a child. Um, I wouldn't say chronically, but pretty close. Um, I, I just distinctly remember just feeling that. And as a child, I just thought that I just felt nauseous. But learning and understanding as an adult, I'm like, oh, that was just a somatic um, symptom, a body symptom of anxiety. Externally, um, as a child, um, I had a very high need for things to be perfect. And that is um, also an indicator of anxiety is this really high drive for perfection and achievement. And so as an adult, I look back and I'm like, oh, okay, that's what that was. Yeah, because I, I and I think those are good because I, I want people who might be listening to think through or to hear just kind of what those outward or inward expressions of anxiety or depression are. And so if they're listening and they're like, oh, that like, yeah, as I think about it, those were true of my childhood or those are true of me right now, too. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe I should seek a professional on this to kind of flesh this out. And if it is or how to deal with it or, or things like that, because, um, you know, sometimes, you know, in listening to this, someone might be like, well, how do I know I have anxiety? Right. Like, how do I know it's just not yeah. because I procrastinated for the last <laughs> two months and now I'm stressed or, you know, like, and that's why I asked the stress and anxiety question, mm -hmm. like, are they the same? Mm -hmm. Because I think some people just might dismiss anxiety as like, Oh, I'm just stressed. I'm just right. stressed out or I'm just busy or, you know, like whatever we, um, we use so many other words to kind of throw away anxiety and not really deal with it. That's a great point because I think last time, last episode, we talked about how, being tired can sometimes be confused with depression. And I think stress is the, the one that can be confused for anxiety. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think if I can even kind of piggyback on that, I think that depression and anxiety have gotten a really bad rap and understandably so because people do struggle with those daily um, at their roots. So they're not bad things. They don't feel good, but they're not bad. Um, I think we try, try to place, our emotions and categories and we say, well, these are the good ones and these are the bad ones, but they're, they're neither good nor bad. One, mm. they're not fact. They're just feelings. And two, they're not good or bad. And we get caught in this thing of, oh my goodness, I feel anxiety. I have to get rid of it. Or, oh my goodness, I feel depressed. I have to get rid of it. Rather than slowing down and saying, this is a feeling. What is my body trying to tell me that? Tell me through this. So mm. when I went through probably in my early 20s, a three-year bout of depression, maybe even a little bit longer than that, there were some significant things that my body was telling me that I needed to address and confront. I had a lot of grief going on. I was grieving some pretty significant relationships in my life. Um, I was grieving some pretty significant events in my life. And that was a really important thing for me to go through because that's my body's way of saying, wow, this isn't how it should be. And I came out of that and I was okay. 
and I'm still okay. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we sometimes get lost is we think if I feel anxiety, if I feel depression, at the end, I'm not going to be okay. Mm. Rather than saying this is just a messenger, what is it trying to tell me? Yeah. But with that, to somewhat answer your comment, yeah, that wasn't really a question. <laughs> that wasn't <a> question. <laughs> um, there does come a point where um, anxiety and depression can become um, harmful, um, and it can be it can create a lot of suffering. Um, it almost goes beyond this is just a messenger. When we think of anxiety and depression being beyond what we'd normally expect, we think, okay, it's disordered now. Mm -hmm. And for something to be disordered, it is impairing daily functioning in some way. Mm -hmm. And so for those people who are like, who um, aren't attuning maybe as well to their bodies and they're like, no, 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 this is fine. Um, one, I think that there is, um, I think that in the essence, the struggle with that really is that we're, we're not attuning to the body now and we're not listening to that messenger. Um, but two, is it impairing some type of function? Can I not, can I not leave my house at all ever right now because I have so much anxiety? Am I not calling and reaching out to my supports because I'm having so much anxiety? Am I losing sleep at night? Am I not eating as well? Am I eating too much now? And so there's all of these different elements that it's now impairing daily functioning. Yeah, it's hard to know. I, I kind of, my personality is I want that clear cut line of like, when is this a healthy or a helpful feeling that is telling my body something, right? Like mm -hmm. you said, and when does it cross over to harmful to my health or debilitating or something that's, that's just negative and it's going to wreak havoc in me, <laughs> in my soul, in my body, whatever. And there's the, uh, the kind of the quick action response type of mentality. I think many of us have to where I want to go like, okay, well, this is my body telling me something like, let's figure it out now. You know, mm -hmm. like you talked about three years of dealing with it and like, was there a, a point of like, well, if I would have just listened to my body in the first <laughs> month and maybe I wouldn't have had to deal with the next 35 months. Right. You know, like that's where my, my tendency goes is like, okay, let's just figure out quick. But right. the reality is sometimes you just, you have to go through something, right? You can't mm -hmm. just get out of it quickly, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on like maybe the balance between those things. Cause you don't want to sit in it forever and you don't want to just quickly blow past it either. Mm -hmm. So what does that look like for someone kind of starting to enter into that? Yeah. Well, first, when I think of that three-year bout of depression that I went through, I was grieving a really significant relationship. It wasn't a death. It was a relationship that I was grieving. And when you think of had that person in my life actually died, three years seems like a pretty reasonable time to grieve that. Mm -hmm. And I, in working with adults and seeing some of the atrocities that they've experienced as children, um, I look at some of those things and I think, there's no way they're going to grieve this for a day. The things that have happened in their lives just aren't acceptable. Like they're in no point in their life, they can find resolve in it, but in no life should they ever have to find this place of, I accept what happened to me because it shouldn't have ever happened. And so that's kind of the thing I keep in mind is when we really take a look at, um, particularly with um, depression, a lot of that can be grief. This wasn't the way it was supposed to be. Right. And that is a process. And similarly with anxiety, when we think of um, adults growing up in a chronically stressful environment, 
their body system learns to be anxious. It learns to always be on alert because you don't know what's going to happen next. And I I actually will say this. So with my clients, so let's say I have a client that is 32 years old and they come in with chronic anxiety and they're like, okay, tell me what I can do to fix it. And I say, well, it's taken you 32 years to build up the neural network to have this anxiety. It's not going to take a month to unbuild that and create new structures. That's going to take time. And I think there's even an element of self-compassion in there as well. Um, So again, to kind of use um, the depression I went through as an example, again, it's not the end all be all, but just as an example, um, one of the things that I would look at was during that time, was I able to still get up and go to work? Was I able to be attentive to my children? Um, was I able to still engage in um, faith practices? And the answer to that was, yes, I was. If the answer to one or all of those is, no, I wasn't, that's when we say, okay, maybe we need some additional support here. Um, If I can't, if I'm on the couch sleeping all day long and my children are just running around on their own, um, that's environmental trauma for them, right? right? Um, If I can't, if I'm calling out and let me back. There's a difference between saying I'm having a rough day. I need to take a mental health day versus I'm calling out a couple days every week. And so again, we say, okay, this is becoming disordered because I can't function in life now. Anxiety um, is is a type of alert system for us, right? So it's it's alerting our body. Our body's telling us, "Hey, um, either something's coming, or you need to work on this, or or whatever the circumstance may be in your life." But but you also said anxiety can be a liar, where you might be anxious about things that you don't need to be. I, I, I guess what I was maybe going to ask was, what lies do anxiety and depression tell us? I am actually really glad that you asked that question. When we go through a depressive episode, do we do we accept that as this is my body's telling me something? It's not forever. It's not fact. Um, and really stop and listen to what we need. Or are we getting caught in this place of I'm a failure. I'm an idiot. I have no worth. I have no value. And that's the way that depression can lie to us. Mm. Because it gets us in the spiral of the of this thought process. And again, that's where it can get concerning. And that can be one of those places where we either learn new strategies um, or we reach out for help. Um, because depression will start telling us things that aren't true. Um, one of the common things that depression will tell us is everybody else would be better off without me. And that's just not true. And people can't see when they get really, really deep in depression, they can't see through the fog to say, actually, people would be heartbroken without me. With anxiety, one of the ways that that can be a liar is that we start feeling anxious about things we don't really need to be anxious about. It's funny. I was um, 
driving. It was when my kids were littler. I was on my way to uh, one of their friends' birthday parties and I was gonna, I was running like 10 minutes late and I'm like white knuckling the steering wheel. I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I'm going to be late. I'm going to be late. And all of a sudden it like occurred to me, I'm like, why am I stressing about this? Um, why do I have so much anxiety about this right now? Because I'm going to show up and in five minutes, nobody's even going to re- remember that I was late. And in a year, I'm not even going to remember what birthday party this is, which is true. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm like, why am I spending all of this energy, all of this anxiety over something that really is irrelevant and insignificant? Mm-hmm. And so now when I'm driving to birthday parties and I'm late, I'm like, meh, I'll get there when I'll get there. <laughs> right. There's no sense getting that anxious about it. Yeah. Like a, a right ordering of things mm-hmm. in your life sounds like could be one tool in helping to prevent anxiety and maybe even depression, like just a, a, a ordering of, of prioritizing the things in your life. Mm-hmm. Like, Hey, this is, yes, it's important, but this is not the most important thing, you know, and being Absolutely. able to place it correctly. Yeah. I know since that point, one of my um, coping strategies, if you will, for lack of better words, is when I start feeling anxious about something, I ask myself, is this going to matter in a year? Mm-hmm. Is this going to matter in six months? Is this going to matter in a week? Because if it's not, I probably should just let it go. Yeah. So when you were talking about that, one of the things I, I kept thinking back to was just our core fears, mm-hmm. like our fear of abandonment or our fear mm-hmm. of failure and how a lot of times those are the root of a lot of the anxiety because you know, when you're white knuckling it to the to the birthday party or like, you know, that had thoughts of me like being late to work or mm-hmm. or, um, you know, just different scenarios and different circumstances and and understanding like I'm afraid at, at the root of my anxiety, I'm afraid I'm going to look like a failure. Right. I'm afraid that I'm going to um, that this person's going to leave me because I didn't show up how they wanted me to, mm-hmm. or I didn't perform like they wanted me to. And so I feel like a lot of my anxiety at the root of it is, is my core fear. Um, yep. What I'm truly afraid of flushes itself out in anxiety. Mm-hmm. And that is when working with people with anxiety or depression, um, we call them, there's many things that we call it in the mental health field. We call them negative cognitions, negative beliefs, unmet needs, but it's all basically talking about the same thing. It's these core beliefs that we have. And the way I explain it is it's not always a cognitive thought either. Mm-hmm. Like we're not always walking around saying, I'm so unlovable. I'm such a failure. I'm so unworthy, but really is a sense that we get in our bodies. And so when something starts hitting on that sense, that's when we go into these responses. Yeah. It sounds really like uh, the lies that it's attacking get to our identity, right? Who we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we talk about with Missy a lot, our identity in Christ. Uh, and some of those identities being that we are family because we are adopted into uh, by the father, adopted into the family of God. We're brothers and sisters with one another. We're servants because we've been served greatly by the king of all creation who laid down his life for us. And we're called to imitate him. So we, we are servants to the king who served us. We're missionaries because we're invited to join him on his mission of bringing restoration to all the world. So 
those are three identities we pick out from scripture of family, servant, missionary. Uh, and a lot of times for me personally, the identity that gets attacked is the family one. Mm. Um, that kind of what Anthony was talking about, like you, you don't belong or you're not loved or you're not wanted. And what you said is so true. Like a lot of times that is not a cognitive thought of mine at all. Mm-mm. But if I really start examining my actions, my heart, my attitude, my perceptions of what's going on around me and the circumstance, and if I can really do the work of breaking that down and getting to the base of it, that's the truth is I'm believing this lie that I am not, uh, I'm not loved or I'm not accepted. I'm not wanted. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of times we've talked about in our church, like simple behavior or simple thought is believing a lie. Mm-hmm. It's not believing the truth of the gospel fully in that moment. And we've had people at times who struggle with that because tell somebody who has raised their hand and said a prayer or goes to church all the time or grew up in a Christian home that they're not believing (laughs) in Jesus at the moment. That's a really hard thing to hear. But what we really mean is it's not that you're cognitively disassociating yourself with Jesus in that moment. It's not that you're cognitively disbelieving the gospel. It's that somewhere at the core of you, there's some type of lie that has been able to take root and take place. And it's manifesting itself now in the way that you're interacting with the world and people around you. Right. And I think so. One of the things that I really grappled with um, in terms of, okay, what does this mental health meets faith thing look like is um, I grew up very much in a generation, a culture where we targeted the behaviors and we said these behaviors are sinful. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to negate that. But coming into the mental health field, I'm like, these very things that we're accusing people of sin are the very things that people, the very strategies that people are using to mitigate pain in their lives. And so when somebody is using drugs, it's because they're numbing. They're finding a way to numb hurt. That's what, that's the essence of drugs or they're giving themselves a good feeling where they can't get it otherwise. And I'm like, okay, so how do I make sense of this? Because now we're going to go to that person and say, you're such a sinner for using drugs, but Mm -hmm. that's a strategy that they've come by. And I think the way that I've been able to come to terms with this the most, again, I'm not, I'm not speaking of whether (laughs) sin use or drug use is sinful or not. That's not the point. But what happens is we have these negative belief systems internally and we seek out things other than God to fulfill them. Yeah. And that's, in essence, idolatry. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't have golden calves today that we kneel down and worship at. But we start worshiping the things that start to fill that need. And the truth is they're never going to fill it the way God will fill it ever. Thanks, Crystal, for joining us on the podcast again. We'll continue uh, throughout this season talking about mental health. So thanks for listening. Check back in next week.